0: This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. This week, a book by Fran Hammerstrom called My Double Life, Memoirs of a Naturalist. Born in 1907, Fran's early life was one of privilege on the East Coast, very much part of society. And every expectation was for her to become a proper part of that society. But throughout her childhood, She was definitely a rebellious and unhappy individual, finding the real meaning in her life outside, spending hours hiding in trees, observing all around her, learning to hunt at a very early age and finding endless, profoundly creative ways to escape the confining life designed for her. She even spent a time as a successful fashion model to earn money to help her move towards what was to become a life of groundbreaking field work as a student of Aldo Leopold, studying prairie chickens, sharp-tailed grouse, and raptors, and many more species. And happily for us, she was a writer. This chapter from My Double Life, called A Letter from My Mother-in-Law, finds her in the beginning of her time as a field biologist with her lifelong partner, Frederick, moving into a farmhouse that Leopold had arranged for them to live in, in Washera County, in the middle of winter, no running water, no heat except the wood stove, and no electricity. A letter from my mother-in-law. When Alda Leopold assigned us both to work on prairie chickens, we could hardly believe our good fortune. I knew that Frederick would be accepted, but I never graduated from high school and flunked out of Smith College in my sophomore year. To be sure, my scholastic record shot up after my marriage. I straightened out, graduated from Iowa State College, and even received a prize for the woman most likely to succeed in research. To work with Frederick as a team, rather than as a tag-along wife, I needed a chance to work for my master's degree Leopold never held my sex nor my early scholastic record against me. And now we were about to head for our first field assignment on prairie chickens. Leopold arranged for us to move into a farmhouse in Washera County. Clyde Terrell, the kindly owner, said, Tell your students they don't have to pay rent. There are some broken windows upstairs. I hope they'll fix them. And I left some food up there once. Tell them they can eat it. He added, I wish they'd paper the kitchen, too. It was plain that some day he hoped to come back to a ramshackle old building that he had named Paradise Found. Frederick had a toothache. He was cutting a wisdom tooth. I drove the last part of the way so he could hold his scarf against his jaw. We bumped through snowdrifts, and at last the headlights picked up our new home. It was New Year's Eve. But for a fleeting moment, I wondered whatever had possessed us to come straight from a party to move into a strange house after dark. In city clothes, I could see the rusted screen of the front porch flapping in the wind. Frederick was crouched low, holding his cheek. You just stay in the car. I'll go in and get the house warm. The key, we had been informed, was under a rock by the front door. In high heels... I fumbled around in the snow, which was getting deeper by the minute, to find rocks. There were several, all frozen down. I let quite a blast of cold air into the car, looking for the jack handle. "'Want me to help you?' "'No, I can do it. You just sit there.' Using a chunk of stove wood from the shed back of the house as a fulcrum, I tried to pry the rocks up. It was hopeless. They might as well have been set in cement." Returning the jack handle to the car, I shouted, "'I'll have to break in!' Frederick nodded without answering. But in a few minutes, he joined me in together, without splintering too much wood. We jimmied the door open. I'm sure that if he hadn't had a great deal of self-control, he would have been uttering little moans of pain. It didn't take much persuasion to get him back in the car to wait for the promised warm house. I built a fire in the kitchen stove. All it did was belch smoke, so I had to open the doors and windows to let the smoke out. Next, I tried the living room stove, an ornate heater with isinglass windows. The result was the same. Coughing and with stinging eyes, I aired the house thoroughly. There was a kerosene cook stove. We would have to make do with that. There were numerous cans that might have held kerosene. They were all empty. Even the one with a frozen potato stuck over its snout. Dejected and thoroughly chilled, I went out to the car. Darling, do you think we can make it back to that last town? We have to buy some kerosene. We can try. The drifts were piling up, but we made it back with a big can of kerosene. We lit the stove for a few minutes to warm up our hands. Then we felt our way up the narrow stairway and found a pile of quilts. Acorns tumbled out when we lifted them, and they smelled like mice. But we put the pungent quilts on a creaky bed and crawled beneath them. Slowly, slowly, the aching cold left our bones, and we were warm. The next morning, Frost tipped Frederick's eyelashes. They were long and black and curved, and the Frost tipped every lash. He smiled in his sleep, and I knew the toothache was gone. At last, he stirred and woke up. We dressed quickly. I had to get back into my finery because my field clothes were still in the car, but Frederick soon produced the duffel bags so I could change in the icy kitchen. Again, smoke belched from the stove. Frederick adjusted the doors and the damper and tried all the tricks he knew to get a fire started. I tapped the stovepipe with a high-heeled shoe. We fought that stove with all the skill we had. Suddenly, the smoke went up the chimney instead of out into the kitchen. The fire caught and crackled. The house was full of food to augment our supplies. Flour, prunes, raisins, sugar, syrup, pancakes mixes, tea, coffee, dried milk, and unidentified pastes and mixtures. Only the coffee was labeled correctly. The flour was in a huge cookie can. Cookies, raisins, prunes, and some moldy bacon emerged from a fishing tackle box. I didn't find the jams and jellies for a long time. They were stored in milk bottles inside two big potato chip cans marked machine oil. The remains of a package of cornflakes contained more mouse and squirrel droppings than cereal. We, too, soon learned to protect all food from marauding rodents. Daily we explored the vicinity of our house on snowshoes looking for prairie chickens and we finally found a few tracks in a rye field where the wind had exposed pigeon grass and ragweed. Then we asked our neighbor John where we could find chickens. These went. All went. Used to be some round here. They's went. Then he gave us the local news. It was said that Charlie Pratt was going to put in electricity. And you know what Pete did? Pete was our neighbor on the other side, and we hadn't met him yet. Pete found an electric bulb on a dump, and he climbed the phone pole to hook it in, but he never got no yard light. He got nothing. John laughed hugely and offered us a drink. We drank some stinging whiskey out of big white cups and took our leave, headed for Pete's. There was an electric light bulb fastened in some mysterious manner to the phone pole nearest Pete's house, and we didn't expect to learn much. Pete may not have known much about electricity, but he knew where the chickens were. There's corn on the marsh. He waved his arm expansively toward the west. Too dry here, but the corn on the marsh grew good, and that's where the chickens are. He was right. We never saw any chicken tracks near our house again, so we hauled our traps to the Leola Marsh miles away and made some pretty good catches. Our house was in the hills. They weren't big hills. Chunks of ice had become embedded in the moraine left by the last glacier and when the climate became warmer the ice melted leaving innumerable small ponds surrounded by hills. It was as though the landscape had been designed by some devil to catch snow and plug up the roads in the year of our Lord 1939. The winter landscape took on an unreal quality the tops of the telephone poles looked like fence posts in the drifts we never met anyone who had a telephone and i wondered where the poles led tall on the hilltops and short in the valleys finally we were snowed in with no way to get to the marsh where the prairie chickens were some seven miles away the mailman came by our house he had invented a snowmobile this was almost surely the first snowmobile in the state of wisconsin This contraption had proved untrustworthy and was soon replaced by a factory model with six back wheels, three on each side, and runners in front. He romped across the top of the drifts followed by an enormous whirl of flying snow. The first time he came by, we thought the road must be open again. machine that rode on top of the snow was beyond our imagination. The snowmobile let us know that the road was still unplowed and if the whirling cascade subsided at the end of our drive, we knew that the mailman had stopped and that there was something in the box for us. We rarely received mail. We had no bills to pay by mail and no one consulted us professionally. Our mothers kept writing us. Frederick's mother wrote me, I remember, when entertaining at luncheon and used doilies instead of a tablecloth. It happened when I read the letter when sitting at our dining table. The decor consisted of a battered kerosene can and funnel, a lamp with a smoky chimney, an axe, saw, and hammer, two recent copies of Journal of Wildlife Management, and a partly consumed can of sardines. The table was covered with patterned oil cloth. The pattern consisted of flowers in pots and the cloth was cracked. Use doilies. And remember, dear, she advised me on various matters as long as she lived, to have your mink coat lined. It's just wrong to wear it the way you do. I paused for a moment to recall an evening in New York and the face of the head waiter in the Stork club. Even when I was a debutante, I had made my own mink coat from an old one of my mother's plus furs rescued from trunks in my parents' attic and road-killed mink that I had skinned and tanned myself. It was floor-length, and its voluminous folds moved with grace when I walked because I had refused to line it. The inside of the coat consisted of the undersides of mink skins neatly sewn together. Some of the furrier's skins had little punch marks for coating the color and grade. A few of mine showed bite marks at the back of the necks of some females, wounds inflicted by the rough-and-tumble matings of big males with small females, and some of my hides were discolored. Anyone who has been a fashion model and worked the East Coast Circuit from Boston to Palm Beach well knows what sort of an impression her clothes are making. My escort and I had swept into the stork club slowly. No one needed to tell me that heads were turning. The head waiter, with a little nod to my escort, so to speak asking permission, seated me and lifted my coat with slow dexterity from my bare shoulders. As he exposed the inside, putting it over the back of my chair, I heard something between a gasp and a wheeze. For a moment his aplomb has been shaken. Now I had forgotten my mink coat and the mousy quilts had not been warm enough last night. I dug around in our boxes and found it. I spread it skin side down on our bed. It looked just beautiful. Then I hurried down to the warmth of the kitchen, pried a couple of sardines out of the can with my fingers and nibbled on them while continuing to read Mrs. Hammerstrom's letter. Frederick writes that you are living in a little wooden farmhouse. Window boxes are very attractive, dear Fran. Window boxes of bloom with geraniums and petunias and often set a small house apart, give it a pleasant cottage look. And remember, dear, don't spoil Frederick, there are times to be firm. Communicating with my mother-in-law was always something of a challenge. Dear Mrs. Hammerstrom, thank you for your nice letter and for reminding me of my mink coat. Our house would seem small to you, but it is just right for us. It has three bedrooms, a living room, a kitchen, a well-stocked pantry, and a woodshed. It is pleasant to have the woodshed attached to the house. We never have to bother with wet wood and sit by a snug, cozy fire every evening after the day's work is done. Our house is nestled amongst exquisite wild pine trees. It has beautiful, simple lines, and the well-weathered wood fits beautifully into the landscape, which is somewhat hilly. So far, we have not entertained here. I pried the last sardine out of the can and drank the oil. Those who have worked outdoors in cold climates know that the craving for fat and oil in the diet is intense, but I didn't think I'd tell her that. Then I came to the part about not spoiling Frederick, and I wrote exactly what I believe. I have every intention of spoiling Frederick. To soften it a little, I added, men are to be spoiled. We both loved Frederick, but we saw him with different eyes. And that's the end of the chapter letter from my mother-in-law. Some more wonderful things from Fran yet to come in weeks ahead. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thanks so much for listening.